1: In each episode of The Murder Diaries, we tell true crime one story at a time. One week, it's my turn, and the next week, it's mine. You still think it's in my head, but I'm walking with the dead.
2: Today, I'm going to tell you about a young teacher's sadistic murder, that left her small Texas community reeling. Despite an abundance of forensic evidence, her case remained unsolved for 26 years, two and a half decades. That is until last month, April 2021, when investigators successfully identified and arrested the offender, only to realize that they had been on the peripheries of each other's lives for years, as classmates, friends of friends, and even as a bridesmaid at the offender's wedding. This is the story of Mary Catherine Edwards.
1: I want to touch on the fact that Mary Catherine was a teacher, an educator, because this month, May, has Teacher Appreciation Week at the beginning of it. And Natalie and I are going to attempt to show our appreciation for all the educators out there um, who are no longer with us, And those of you who are listening who are with us as educators, of course, too. But we're going to do our best by telling Mary Catherine's story this week and another educator's story next week so that we can honor their lives and the commitment that they showed and the difference they made in their communities. It's
2: Friday, January 13th, 1995. We're in Southwest Texas, about 85 miles east of Houston, in a small city called Beaumont. 31-year-old Mary Catherine Edwards, who went socially as Catherine, so that's what I'll be calling her for the rest of the episode, leaves the Price Elementary School campus around 5 p.m. And she's known for staying late and working really hard and throwing in those extra hours because she just loved her students. And for you guys to picture her in your mind, she's this petite, I'm talking barely five feet brunette with a pixie cut. She is adorable. And it's the end of another long work week teaching the second grade. And Catherine's ready for a relaxing evening in at her new townhouse on Park Meadow Street, which doesn't seem to be out of character for her because her life revolved around school, the gym, and church. She had actually been attending a Bible study class at First Baptist Church around this time in her life. So just to give you an idea of what her day-to-day would have been like. And it makes sense because, you know, we're both women in our 30s and we definitely, on a Friday night, don't want to go out to a bar. We go home and
1: uh, relax. Hang out with our husbands or... Exactly. Maybe have another couple friend over, but that's about how extreme I get these days. (laughs) Right. And she actually
2: was in a really happy and healthy relationship with her boyfriend, although they didn't live together at the time. And... Even though the timeline of this evening is a bit shaky, we know that once she arrived home from school, she walked her dog, which was a little beagle. Aw, I know, right? And it seemed to be part of a routine that she had. She poured a glass of wine and then called her boyfriend. Little did she know, it'd be the last phone call she'd ever make. The following day, Saturday, January 14th, 1995, Lum Caswell Edwards and Mary Ann Minton Edwards, who are Catherine's parents, repeatedly tried to get in touch with her, but it went nowhere. They called their daughter again and again and again. And with each unanswered phone call, their unease grew. Sure, Catherine was an adult in her 30s, but she was still their vibrant and loving little girl. And it wasn't like Catherine To fall out of touch. Is your daily
0: grind getting you down? A Thermospas hot tub may be the solution. Just a few minutes under those powerful, soothing jets, and all your stress seems to melt away, like you're lying on a cloud of bubbles. You'll not only feel better, but sleep better too. Call 877-861-4672 now, and for a limited time, save $1,250. Call 877-861-4672 or visit thermospas.com to schedule a free on-site assessment.
1: I'm an adult in my 30s and I talk to my parents like three times a day. Same. So I totally get this. You know, my siblings talk to my parents a lot too. So for some families, this is completely normal. If I, for example, didn't speak to my parents for more than a day, they would probably start freaking out and calling my husband or anybody else to figure out what was going on with me if they couldn't get a hold of me. I want to honor that. I am, of course, referring to the privilege of having both parents and, and a loving family. So we absolutely recognize that for some of you out there listening, this may sound a little off, but for Catherine and for myself, this is normal and that's okay. Catherine was one of three children. She had a brother who was three years
2: older named Lum Castle Edwards III and a twin sister named Allison Ann. And from what you might have gathered, this was a very tight-knit family. They had always been that way all her life, too. In fact, the Edwards house was at the center of activity for the neighborhood children growing up. And there was always music from Broadway musicals playing in their house, blasting off the record player. We're talking cabaret, music man, mame. If it was a musical on Broadway, it was playing. In addition to that, they had magic shows and impromptu dance numbers that were a regular occurrence at family gatherings. This is a family that enjoyed spending time with one another.
1: It sounds like a family straight out of an 80s movie. Totally. That's exactly what I thought. And
2: funnily enough, her twin sister chose a similar route in her professional life. She was actually a kindergartner teacher nearby at Amelia Elementary. And every year, Catherine would warn her new second grade students that she had a sister. And this is according to the Beaumont Enterprise, uh, a profile they did on both sisters in 1993. So two years before this. And Catherine was known to say, if you see another one of me walking around somewhere and she doesn't speak to you, Don't get your feelings hurt. It's probably my sister. So this is her just giving her, I don't know, seven-year-old students a heads up. Like, look, I love you, but uh, don't be startled if you see me and um, I don't recognize you because it's not
1: me. With kids that young, that can be really important because that could be confusing to them. You know, they're coming to school late or something at recess and they see who they think's their teacher and they're mm-hmm. waving. And it's like, why doesn't she <laughs> wave back? Why doesn't she know me? I just want to take another quick beat to recognize that, of course, some of our listeners may not come from families like this. But in Catherine's case, it's so important to highlight this because it was a big part of her life in particular and lets us know contextually where she was at in life and what her life was like and her family life was a big part of it.
2: That's so true. And it really helps us understand how the story unfolds, which we're, we're going to be getting into. All of that is to say that her parents' intuition, their gut feeling was that something was wrong. And around 2 p.m. that same day, so Saturday, Saturday, January 14th, her parents took matters into their own hands and they drove to Catherine's house to check on her. Her father went upstairs and discovered a horrific scene. Oh no. Something that no one, let alone a parent, should ever see. And I want to give a trigger warning right now because we're not ones on this podcast to tell gruesome details for the shock of it. Right. We don't typically go into too much detail about the crime scenes, but for this specific story, uh, the detail does play a part later on. And so if that is something that will be triggering for you, just keep that in mind um, as you continue to listen. And we'll also be having a trigger for
1: SA. So skip forward if you need to heed the trigger warning. Now, when Catherine's
2: father walked into the bedroom, the first thing he noticed was that the sheets and comforter had been ripped off the bed and all of her belongings were strewn about the room, indicating that she may have tried to fight off an attacker. When he entered the bathroom, the shower rod had been knocked from its mount, and the curtain hung askew. And according to the affidavit from the crime scene, her body was draped over the edge of the bathtub with her head in the water and her legs on the floor. That's a direct quote. Catherine's wet, partially naked body lay on the floor and her arms were handcuffed behind her back. She had been sexually assaulted and murdered. There were a total of 36 wounds across her body, according to an autopsy that was later performed. And these wounds suggested that a struggle had occurred, that she fought her attacker with all her might. There were even bruising on the front sides of her hip that were consistent with finger marks from the offender using his hands to control her during this sexual assault.
1: It's just the stuff of nightmares. It truly is. I mean,
2: this is something that you don't want to hear about any happening to anyone, let alone your loved one, your daughter. I can't imagine the trauma this family must have experienced to walk in and discover this horrific scene.
1: I was having such a reaction to what you were listing that I forgot you mentioned that dad is the one that had found her just a moment ago. Wow. The brutality of this case
2: left Beaumont as a community. We're talking Catherine's students, her friends, her family, reeling. And it was particularly difficult for her students. I mean, think about it. These are seven and eight-year-old. They're babies. And they had to see a carbon copy of their beloved teacher walking around, you know, in her twin sister, Allison. And in fact, they even saw her at the funeral. And there's a quote from one of them that said when the sister walked in, how hard they were hit by seeing, you know, this familiar face, this loved face in person.
1: I don't want to put specifics to the twins' experience with this, Mm -hmm. but my common sense is deducing that that would make the twins' experience just that much more difficult, looking exactly like the sister, the twin that she lost, seeing how that affected not just herself, but the people around her as well who were grieving the sister that looked just like her. I can only imagine
2: the Beaumont Police Department, the Texas Department of Public Safety and the DA's office all began an investigation into the case. And according to the affidavit, there were no signs of forced entry, which suggested that Catherine knew or trusted her attacker. Thankfully for the investigation, there was no shortage of evidence at Catherine's home. In fact, there was DNA evidence, semen, that they were able to uncover from her body. And in these early years of the investigation, the investigators spent $10,000 sending that evidence from the crime scene to a lab in Maryland for testing. They entered it in CODIS and hoped for a match, but they didn't get one. So detectives decided that they would look through sex offender registries They searched her associations at the gym and her church and everywhere else she was known to frequent. But they couldn't find anyone that matched the DNA sample. And they thought it was really interesting because the handcuffs that were used were Smith & Wesson, which were typically used by law enforcement. So what they did was, they ended up testing about 20 police officers and correctional officers against the DNA sample. But that too proved to be a dead end because they didn't find a match.
1: I want to interject a little bit of context here, if you don't mind. Sure. This is pre-amber alert. So when we're talking about sex offender database, we don't probably have the same database and. Workthroughs that we do today. We didn't have these cases that set standards like the case that set the mm-hmm. Amber Alert um, and put that law into effect. And CODIS, I don't even wanna know how much of a baby that probably was when we're talking about it being 1995 and how DNA was still so new at that time. I'm sure I'm preaching to the choir because of a lot of our listeners know that but it's just such a huge piece where we're like almost there with this case but like Mm -hmm. not quite so it makes sense that they would have run into a couple of these barriers these hurdles and not been able to get exactly where they wanted to just yet that's so true and
2: unfortunately those barriers were enough that they slowed the case down until it became a cold case so 1995 lapsed 1996, all the way until 2019, just two years ago. This is when the newly elected Jefferson County DA, Bob Wortham, decided that he would reopen a number of cold cases that the Texas Rangers would be looking in on and working. And he specifically asked them to look at Catherine Edwards' murder. As a result, investigators poured over boxes in boxes of material, of evidence of, you know, affidavits of every single piece of information they had about Catherine's case, and they were able to use that tiny piece of DNA evidence that they had uncovered in 1995, and even after all those years, they were able to use that DNA, that tiny piece that was still available to test, and I, w- I really want to make it clear how small of a sample that they had because it, it will blow your mind what they're able to do with just a nanogram. I'm listening. A typical mouth swab that's used in you know the standard DNA test usually holds about 750 to 1,000 nanograms of DNA. The DNA sample from Catherine's case, because it was degraded over the years, was a single Nanogram.
1: No wonder when you're talking about 1995, they were hitting those hurdles we were just talking about a moment ago. CODIS didn't even begin until 1990, and the DNA Identification Act didn't start until 1994, which is kind of what officially established CODIS, which uh, that's according to oig.justice.gov. And then You have this idea that like Amber Alert and the database weren't there. So I am feeling really grateful that they picked this case back up when they did, because now we have those tools and they are longstanding by 25, 30 years. So where did that take them today? They uploaded that tiny nanogram
2: into a website called GEDmatch. And this is a website that's used by police all over. And it can be used by law enforcement to search perpetrators of violent crime. Unfortunately, the database didn't identify a specific individual, but it did help narrow down the type of person the offender was or is. It determined that the person was likely a Cajun man, and it did direct them towards distant relatives.
1: So they were able to pick up on specific DNA markers is what it really sounds like. That's absolutely correct. And
2: these markers led to the offender's distant cousins, about 30 in total. Whoa, we're talking second cousins and, you know, people related but still a little bit farther away that you this person may not be in contact with all the time. Fortunately, Everyone was super helpful and voluntarily gave DNA samples to aid in the investigators' investigation. And over months, the investigators dwindled down the list to a pair of two brothers from Beaumont, Texas. One of the men had no criminal record, but the other brother had a record that proved he was violent And had been charged with a 1981 SA case with eerily similar characteristics to Catherine's murder.
1: So we've got the location Mm -hmm. is correct, Beaumont, a violent past with prior record, Mm -hmm. and he's matching the DNA markers that they're looking for. Exactly. Does this mean we've got the guy? Well, and there's a little bit more, but I don't want
2: to get ahead of myself. But Okay, sorry. That's my fault. (laughs) No, no, no. But investigators are pumped at this point. Yeah, I bet. They're thinking this is a real lead. We have a very real suspect in our sights. This man is Clayton Bernard Foreman, who's now 61 years old, and he lives in Franklin County, Ohio as of, you know, 2021. He was a retired bill collector working as an Uber driver. That also, side note, makes me really scared because you just never know who you're getting in the car with. You don't know their past.
1: Well, it's true. There are definitely precautions that we, and I can imagine most of our listeners know, that you need to take when you're getting in an Uber. But this is definitely one of them. Even if he wasn't responsible for Mary Catherine's murder, he does have a violent past and was driving individuals around. That doesn't mean that we need to ignore the fact that rehabilitation was possible, but Mm -hmm. it just means it's something you don't get to know when you're getting in the car. You don't get to vet whether or not they have a violent past and get to make that choice. So, yeah.
2: That's so true. And just a little bit about that 1981 SA case.
1: Yes. Tell me about it. Clayton had been
2: accused of sexually assaulting a woman at knife point. Court records indicate that he had driven into a gas station late one night and found a woman there stranded. And this is a woman he actually had been previously acquainted with. They had gone to school with one another. He told the woman that he was a police officer and offered her a ride. She trusted him because this is a man that she's somewhat familiar with. You know, they were classmates and she believes him that he's a police officer. So he's there to help. She gets in the car, and he drives away. But he drives her to a secluded spot, stops the vehicle, and ties her hands behind her back. He held a knife to her throat and viciously assaulted her. He was eventually caught and pled guilty to aggravated assault and was sentenced to three years probation, which don't get me started on because that's ridiculous. But this is 1981. So I guess that's how things were done back then. But I really feel that it was important to include this because what do you notice about this case and Catherine's the hands secured behind their back? Right. It's clearly something that he's done before, or you know, was has thought about and it it just gives me chills.
1: It gives me chills considering he became an Uber driver and this case happened by getting a female loan in the car. So now they've got connection between the cases.
2: Yes, but that's not the only connection that Catherine and Clayton have to one another. They actually attended the same high school at the same time. And- were casual friends. She was even a bridesmaid at his first wedding in 1982. What? Yeah, that that's what I thought when I was reading about this case. What? This is a man that clearly has spent some time with her in a
1: friend capacity. That definitely puts the two connected outside of just location of Beaumont and the other things we've listed before. Now we've got personal connection not even just high school but she was in his wedding now obviously this doesn't mean she was in the wedding because she was close to him but it means she knew him at a minimum as a good friend's husband boyfriend fiance right through their relationship now clayton and his ex-wife eventually divorced
2: in 1993 so two years before Catherine's murder Got it. But the ex-wife did attend Catherine's funeral services. So this is a woman that she still felt close to in some regard. And it just makes you wonder how far off was Clayton during the funeral services. You know what I mean? Like he obviously lived in the same area. His ex-wife is going to the funeral. It. There's just so many questions running through my mind. I don't know how to articulate them.
1: There's a lot going on, most definitely, and there are so few degrees of separation between the two that things get murky quickly, and it makes you wonder if he's the one that did it, then. Da, 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 so that your mind right. just starts racing in these kinds of cases. And you,
2: you want to know a disturbing fact about him and his, um, you know, extracurriculars? And I don't mean that facetiously. I just mean like things he did outside of work. He actually was the person to help organize the high school reunions for their high school. And he was in charge of the reunion tributes to former classmates who had died. And so like, he has this really morbid part about him where he just has to be around it or something. I don't know. I I found that very unusual and... I'll be honest, I don't know if he did a tribute for Catherine, but it makes you wonder if he did. I don't know. None of the resources specifically said, but they made sure to say that that was one of his duties.
1: Provided he wasn't stripped of said duty, then he would have known that he was going to be in charge of her impending tribute. Mm -hmm. That's very morbid. And that is a whole nother level of entitlement, in my opinion. It's just a whole nother level of entitlement to me personally. All of
2: that is to bring us to last month, April 2021. Investigators in Ohio worked closely with the investigators back in Texas. And they collected trash from Clayton's home. And they used this trash to extract his DNA and compare it to the DNA that they had taken from the 1995 crime scene. And wouldn't you know, it was a match. And that same day, the day of the discovery, April 29th, 2021, less than a month ago, the Beaumont Police Department and Texas Rangers flew to Columbus, Ohio, where they arrested him and charged him with murder. He was taken into custody in Ohio and he's in the process of being extradited to Texas right now. He has not entered a plea. We, you know, The online arrest records don't reflect that he has an attorney um, that's authorized to speak on his behalf because this is all so new. So that's where we leave you. I mean, he's being held in the Franklin County Corrections Center without bond. He's next scheduled for a court appearance on June 3rd. And, you know, we'll keep you updated. But what a time. This is such a tragic and horrific and sadistic case, but it gives us a glimmer of hope that we're so close to getting justice for Catherine, a woman who was known to love her students like they were her own children, a woman known to open her arms wide and give children hugs when they were upset. And I actually, I want to end, I'm going to take a page out of Paige's storytelling. I want to end with a quote about Catherine. And this is from one of the resources. It's a a quote from an ex-student named Corey Crenshaw. And he is recalling a homeroom party in which his parents forgot to give money or at least enough money for snacks for him and his classmates. But Catherine wasn't a, a teacher that would let her students go without. And so she went to the store and paid for snacks out of her own pocket. And this is a quote from Corey Crenshaw. Catherine went to the store and bought them out of her own pocket. She was sweet, kind, and beautiful, but also generous. And I think that's how we need to remember Catherine. She was a woman with a heart of gold, and she did a lot in her short time here on this earth.
1: This whole story is so intense I am so happy, however, that we get to report that justice just might be in the works. We'll be staying tuned for this one, but this is where we will leave this episode for this week. Until our next episode, you know where to find us at the Murder Diaries Pod on Instagram, at the Murder Diaries Pod at gmail.com, and the Murder Diaries com.
2: And you know what I'm going to say, but I'm going to say it anyway. Don't forget to rate, review, and subscribe to us on Apple Podcasts. It helps us keep the good content coming every week.
1: Your five-star review means everything. Until next time, stay safe. Bye.
0: Is your daily grind getting you down? A ThermoSpa's hot tub may be the solution. Just a few minutes under those powerful soothing jets and all your stress seems to melt away like you're lying on a cloud of bubbles. You'll not only feel better, but sleep better too. Call 877-861-4672 now. And for a limited time, save $1,250. Call 877-861-4672 or visit thermospas.com to schedule a free on-site assessment.
2: Seeking the truth never gets old.